0: Hey, good morning, church. Good to be with you here today. Man, worship was solid this morning. I'm encouraged to hear the Lord working in Indonesia. This is a great morning so far, amen? So good, so good. Uh, Hey, yesterday, um, I had the privilege to do something that was a little bit challenging. Uh, I gave the message to uh, a group of people at a memorial service for Mike McClellan. Mike was my mother-in-law's fiance. Uh, he's been grandpa for a part of our family for about uh, 14 years, really, for, for our kids. He's been involved for, like, 11 or so years. And so that, w- that was a challenging day. It was a, it was a good day to, to remember Mike and share the gospel. Um, but I'm continuing to remind myself that, that we can do hard things by God's grace. Amen. Yeah, And by God's grace, we're going to do a hard thing today We're going to take a look at some text that will likely make us, or should make us, squirm in our seats a little bit The level of uncomfortable that comes along with today's section of scripture found at the end of Judges is uh, relatively high Uh, But we're going to do it by God's grace I'm trusting for the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit does through His presence and through the power of His Word Here's the bottom line for today, friends Look here if we do not build our lives on the king, we are prone to wander farther away from God than most people want to even talk about. Even so, there's more than enough mercy for that. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-3, through three, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. If you're taking notes, you can jot that down. And we're looking at the end of the book of Judges where the people of Israel are at an all-time low. They have reached this phase of lowness on their own accord by neglecting to know and understand God And and by assimilating into the cultural norms of the idol worshipers of the land to bow down to false gods, engage in religious practices that are against God's law and plan. And so they grow in ignorance As to who God truly is and what he truly wants for his people, they are without proper guidance. They are lost. We're going to look and see just how lost they are here this morning. So, before we do that, I think we should pray. God, I pray that you bless this moment, this moment where we look at your word, depend on your spirit, to know you and your heart more clearly, that we might be sharpened and awakened, convicted and corrected humbled and encouraged because of what you're about to do within us. Guide us, Lord, into your faithfulness, into your will, in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first point for this morning is the depravity of humanity. Can you say depravity? I love starting out so dark and deep here this morning. Summary of chapters 17 through 21 of Judges. I want to share a couple of brief stories with you. I can't read four chapters to you because we'd be here and then leave and then I wouldn't get to teach. But I want to summarize just a couple of them and read one in its entirety. So the first thing that happens in, in 17 and 18, there's a, a guy named Micah, and Micah stole his inheritance from his mother. She, she had a bunch of silver she was going to give to him probably as the inheritance. Micah steals it, and then he brings it back to her, and he says, Mom. I am the one who stole your silver. You've been searching for this silver. You've been searching for this coin. Truth is, I took it. She blesses God. Thank goodness. Thank the Lord that this has been returned to me. And this is what she decides. Let's take the coin, melt it down, and turn it into an idol. Okay, first mistake. Then they take this idol and put it on a shrine. So the shrine has a whole bunch of house gods and other cultural gods, and they would worship these gods and pray to these gods to see, would I get healthy if I worship this idol or this idol? Would I be successful in business if I look to these idols on my shrine? Am I getting my hope from these idols? Well, then a Levite priest comes along, and they ask this Levite priest to be the priest in their home. Really cool. They're like, this is good. This is going to be good for us, because uh, God loves a good Levite priest, after all. And this should somehow be a good thing before God. But this guy this guy doesn't like say, we shouldn't worship these other false gods, these idols that you have here on your shrine. He just goes along with it. I don't know if he was like looking for the money, and he's like, what am I going to do as a priest? i, I got to do something. So... He just continues like what's going on in the house. He doesn't change direction. There's no course correction here. So then a tribe of of Danites come along. They steal the Levite priest and the shrine and take it along with them because they think this is a good idea. Now we have a Levite priest and we have this shrine. Ultimately, this is going to be good for us as we try and worship God. But they were so off course. They were so in the wrong direction. It gets worse from here. Number two a levite we're we're looking at chapter 19 here if you're you're following along chapter 19 there's another story of another levite who's filled with rage and he's filled with rage for many reasons firstly his wife is unfaithful to him and she gets pregnant she runs away back to her home and the levite goes to the in-laws house to try and get her back to bring her home Well, she ultimately agrees. I don't know what happens that makes her agree, but she decides to agree and come back home. But the father in law kind of pesters him for a few days. Hey, why don't you stay for dinner and then you guys can go home tomorrow? And if you've ever been pestered by your in law, I never have, but if you have ever been pestered by your in law to stay longer than you should, you know, sometimes you just want to get home and take care of business. So he stays. And then the next day he says, just stay for breakfast. And then he says, stay for dinner. Oh, you've already stayed for dinner. The morning's coming. Just stay until tomorrow. He does this for the better part of a week. And so finally he leaves and takes his wife. The Levite's on a journey home with his wife, and they don't make it home, so they got to stay somewhere for the night. They end up staying at this man's house uh, who has welcomed them into his home. Really nice, very, very generous, right? Just opening the door to invite somebody in. Super generous. I love that hospitality. So what happens here in the story, this gets a little dark and a a little bit twisted. Um, Not my favorite story to tell from the pulpit, but this is the reality of of the people that we're working with in the brokenness of sin here in this text. So there's a a group of Benjamites who are part of Israel. They see this man and his kindness opening up his house to the the Levite and his concubine, his wife at the time, and and they come pounding on the door. And they're like, hey, that guy that you just welcomed into your home— why don't you send him out to here to us? There was a whole gang of Benjamites. Like, send him out here to us so that we can have our way with him. They wanted to abuse him. So this, this, the host was like, absolutely not. I am not going to just surrender my guest to you to have your way with. I mean, that makes sense, right? Instead, he says, how about you take my virgin daughter and have your way with her? Still twisted. He's trying to do something right, but he's doing it in the wrong way. He's twisted. So uh, then the Levite's like, "No way. You can't like, you can't sacrifice your daughter. Like, you can't like send her out there. Take my concubine instead." Uh, uh, still, still really twisted. Maybe he was doing this because he was mad. I think he was doing it out of the hospitality of like responding to the hospitality, trying to be kind as well. All that to say, the man does not get abused. The host does not get abused. What happens, the virgin daughter does not get abused. They send out the concubine. She is abused all night long, and in the morning, she shows up on the doorstep, and she dies. This is the, the story that we're dealing with here. She dies from the, the trauma and the abuse. Um, he loads her on the back of the, the horse or camel or donkey and, and finally gets her transported back to his home. And this is this is where things are like, we're already like dabbling in the darkness and depth of what grossness there is here. He dismembers her and ships her body parts to all the regions of Israel, okay? This is what it says here in chapter 19. And and here is the response from all of Israel in regards to this. They start getting super ticked off at the tribe of Benjamin for what they have, have heard the message of what has happened to his concubine. And they say something along the lines of like, such a grotesque thing has not happened since the time that our people were leaving Egypt. I don't know if what they were specifically talking about. Maybe one of the plagues, or maybe the decimation of the Egyptians in the Red Sea. I don't know. But they're referring to the, the great darkness that was once in Egypt. So all these tribes of Israel rally together and rise against Benjamin. Benjamin is the, the group that had this gang, and they, they did this nasty thing. They defeat the tribe of Benjamin after several battles with some great losses of their own. And then they go into every city and suburban town in the Benjamin region and they burn it to the ground, taking the sword to everything, including women and children and animals. And this is where I want to pick up reading Judges chapter 21. We've got pretty dark and twisted here this morning, right out of the gate, and I apologize for that. Be gracious with me as we go one more chapter further. I would like to read the whole chapter here. So if you want to follow along, open your scroll to chapter 21 of the book of Judges. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Judges chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. All right, so just so you see here, they're making an oath before the Lord that because Benjamin had a gang of abusers that took advantage of this concubine and killed her, they're saying, we are not going to send any of our daughters to marry Benjamites. Okay, this is the oath they're making, the covenant they're making before the Lord. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God. And they lifted up their voices and they wept bitterly. They said, oh Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. Okay, so there's like a weird, like, juxtaposition here. They're like really mad at Benjamin for the things that they have done, but now they're weeping to the Lord because of what they have done. What they have done is wiped out all of the women and children of the tribe of Benjamin that there can no longer be a legacy of this portion of Israel to be kept as part of the faithful promise of God's covenant to his people. So they're like, oh snap, we did this thing, but why did this thing happen? God, why did you allow this darkness to to happen here, okay? The next day the people rose early, verse 4, and built an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up to the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning whom did not uh, come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left? Since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters. Okay, so now they're planning. If you're tracking along, they're planning. We destroyed what could become the next generation and legacy for Benjamin. We're planning now. How are we going to provide wives for Benjamin so that they can continue to have a generation to follow and a legacy? They said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord, to Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead. Can you say Jabesh-Gilead? Good, you're tracking. To the assembly verse 9, for when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, "Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones." Super dark. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. They found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead four hundred young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the rock of Ramon and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the women. Whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead, but they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Just to make sure you're still tracking with me, they wiped out this entire tribe, okay? Men, women, children, except for the virgins that they had found. So now they're sending 400 of this tribe's virgins to the other tribe in order to help the generation reconstruct. Verse 16, we'll carry on here. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left? Since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin. There were not enough wives. And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters. For the people have sworn, Cursed be he, Who gives a wife to Benjamin? This is the oath they made before the Lord, okay? They made an oath, we're not giving our daughters to Benjamin to be wives. So they're still figuring it out. What are we gonna do? We got 400, but we need more. So they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards, and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh, and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, or else you would be now guilty. So they're kind of justifying this action, right? This action of kidnapping wives at Shiloh. They're saying, we're, We didn't take them by force. We didn't come in and slaughter your people to get your wives. And we didn't ask you for them that you would have to break your oath before God. We're just manipulating the situation to get our own way. Okay? Are you following? All right, verse 23. The people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt their towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. And this is the kicker right here. Verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Do you not see that? Everyone is just doing what they think is right in their own w- in their own eyes in order to, like, care for themselves in this time, in this space. Look, I understand. This is completely dehumanizing. This is abusive. This is horrific. I know. It's uncomfortable to read on your own. It's uncomfortable to read from the pulpit. The people were so lost and confused. They were so possessive of the things and people that needed to be used by them in order to get their own way, and they justified their own actions and behaviors in doing so. So this segment of Scripture just concludes as we just read. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. So what in the world is God wanting to teach us? What in the world are we supposed to gather from such an absurd text? Well, I want to just read a quote to you that is found in the Children's Storybook Bible. It does not share these stories verbatim, uh, just so you know. But it does say this. Sally Lloyd-Jones, who helped craft this book, she said, Now some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best, but the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. uh, They make some pretty big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules. It's not a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the ones he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about the, the story here is that it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in the puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. So, in the big picture, through the arc of Scripture, what is this section of Judges trying to show us? I, get, I, I think we're getting closer to answering this very important question. Why is this section of scripture here? Number one, it's to display our sinfulness. It's to put on display the depths of the depravity of man. We have a great need for a king, and Israel at this time did not have one. They did not have someone who was going to set order and rule for the glory of God in his kingdom right here Right now, there is a display of our sinfulness which is so meaningful. It's dark and it's messy. It's not unlike who we are or what we're inclined or, or capable of becoming. Number two, it's to point to the King who will do away with our sin. It's to point to the King who will do away with our sin. Psalm 1 6 says, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continuously does good and who never sins. I know you have heard Romans 3.23. If you haven't, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short. The Israelites at this time were falling short. They were in need of a king. We today fall short and are in need of a true king. See, Scripture often works like a mirror revealing to us who we really are. We really are in great need of a king who will do away with sin. We all have sin in our lives. I'm gonna share just a couple of stories of like some of my own sinful nature surfacing with you. I remember when I was a a middle school boy, I might have been like late elementary school. It might have been fourth or fifth grade. um, I had a neighbor just on the corner of my street on on Orange Street in Sealands Grove, Pennsylvania, where I grew up. And this neighbor, uh, they had just had their sidewalk completely redone and the curb as well. And my friends and I, we were thinking like, this is so cool. There's like a whole plot of fresh wet cement just waiting for the construction workers to go. We were like, we were like, you remember, like in Hollywood, where they put their hands and their names in the wet cement, and it's like a really, really famous thing to do. We were like, we're going to be Hollywood stars here in like 15 minutes. So the construction workers go, we put our hands in the wet cement, and so that everyone would recognize us, we wrote our first and last names. I know. I know. It was, so, it was so wrong. We were like damaging their property. It was so wrong. Yes, we got caught because our first and last names were there. <laughs> we got in trouble. My dad had to pay this guy a bunch of money to get it fixed. It was, it was embarrassing. Though, even younger, like I remember in second grade, I was at the top of a slide on my elementary school playground, and there was a kid who was coming up the slide behind me. And I just was filled for a moment with such rage. I don't know why. This is a nice kid. I was filled with great rage. I kicked this kid off of the top of the slide. And like he fell to the ground. This was the high slide. It wasn't the little slide. It was the high one. You guys know the high slide at your playground? I kicked a kid off of that in second grade. What the heck? Why, why was that so dark? Like I, I was angry. And I kicked a kid. Alyssa texted me. She was at home this morning. She texted me and she said, we were listening to the sermon. Charlie, my son, who's six, she, he was listening too. He said, I would never do a sinful thing like that, mom. That's why she texted me. My own son is like surprised at the depth of my own depravity. I, I, I know. I know. I remember later in middle school, my parents had a, uh, a coin jar on the armoire. you come in, hang your jacket in the armoire, and then there was a coin jar. My dad would toss his coins there and put his keys right on the shelf there too, and the coin jar would fill up. And it would get filled enough that you could probably snatch a couple of coins out of it and without, like, noticing too much. And just so you know, down the street, there was an Italian restaurant, a little pizza shop, super good. And so some days, I would come home, and I would sneak coins out of the jar, and I would go to the pizza shop and buy pepperoni rolls and some Code Red Mountain Dew. That was the thing, like, just right then, Code Red Mountain Dew. Uh, it was terrible for you. And... <laughs> And I would, I would sneak eating these pepperoni rolls. And then my mom would be like, why aren't you hungry for dinner? Well, this one day, I'm like eating the pepperoni rolls. I tried the whole thing of Code Red Mountain Dew. And like if you ever drink a, a soda, like you get like 16, 20 ounces of soda in your belly really quick. And you slosh your belly around. Like you can hear the liquid inside your stomach. You know, Have you ever done that? It's really fun. My mom come home from work and I had just finished all the food. I'm, she probably saw the box in the trash and could smell it. Um, Because that's how smart I was at committing my sins, as you've already heard. And I'm like, Mom, listen to this awesome sound. I shake my belly. She hears the liquid. She's like, did you drink a Code Red Mountain Dew? And I got in trouble. So I'm prone to depravity, friends. I'm prone to be sinful. But like, okay, thanks for accepting some of my sins from my childhood. What if I was really vulnerable with you and told you my sins of today? Or my sins of yesterday? I struggle. I still struggle. I struggle with moments of of anger and rage. I struggle with things the Apostle Paul lists in Colossians 3, the things of the flesh that I struggle to put to death, therefore whatever belongs to my earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. The next thing Paul says in Colossians 3 is really interesting. He says, do not lie to each other. In between, these are the things you're putting to death, and these are the things that you're going to put on that are life in Christ. In the, in the middle there, he says, do not lie to each other. I think, I think this is a word for our church today. He, he's saying, live in the light with your sins. Confess your sins to one another. See, when we, we're sinful, um, it's really easy to get caught up in the shame, and then it's really easy to isolate yourself and hide because you don't know how to deal with the shame with friends or with the Lord because the enemy's like, you couldn't possibly tell anybody because if you told somebody, they're gonna kick you out of the church. They're gonna think you're the worst sinner ever. They're gonna think you're worse than the people in Judges. You can't get worse than the people in Judges, okay? We have sin. We have depravity. We need to work on not lying to each other. It's really easy to come to church on a Sunday morning wearing your nice outfits. Great outfits, guys. It's really easy to say, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. How are you? Thank you. And then it's easy to check that box, right? But I think the Lord wants us to practice living in the light. Living in the light looks like, yes, confessing my childhood sins, but also living in the light looks like confessing my sins of today. I would encourage you to look for for safe places where you can live in the light, where you can develop uh, a friendship circle or a small group community, where you have intimacy with people, where you can be real about your sin in your struggles, and your pitfalls. The enemy loves to take your fear and shame and isolation and keep you stuck in a, a circle of fear and shame and isolation where you just continue on in the same pattern of sin. Do not lie to each other. The truth is, I'm broken. These people in the Old Testament were broken. The people in the New Testament churches that Paul is writing this to, they were broken. We're all tainted with brokenness. We're prone to want to live as if there isn't a king over our lives and our souls. This is part of the battle we live in. This is the temptation we face. Just as Israel needed a king, I too need the king. We're all prone to wander in the tempting state of doing what seems right in our own eyes. So this leads us to point number two, the mercy of the king. Can you say mercy? Yes. John Maxwell, famous leader, author, wrote this a leader is one who knows the way goes the way and shows the way I praise God we have a, a leader king who not only knows the way goes the way and shows the way but he is the way Jesus said himself in John 14:6, I am the way and the truth and the life nobody comes to the father except through me who is this king of glory Who is the Lord of hosts? He is the King of glory. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. He founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he? The Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. Jesus is the king of glory, the Lord Almighty. Let me ask you a question. What does a king sit on? Did you say his butt? Yeah. No, she said throne. She said throne. <laughs> Hebrews 4:16 says, "Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need." Friends, Our king sits on a throne, and his throne is of grace. This is what his kingdom is about. This is what his work is about. We have a king who is calling you to his grace. It's not that he's not king and lord of all. He is, but that we might surrender and make him king and lord of our lives. Which leads us to the beautiful exchange. Can you say beautiful Did you know that Christ was the propitiation for our sins? The atonement necessary to win us back to God. Remember when we got kicked out of the garden for sin and shame and there began a journey in a waiting of God's people for a deliverer, a true king, a true redeemer? It was a long waiting. And we're not waiting for that anymore because that was Jesus. He finished the work of the waiting on the cross. He became sin That we might become the righteousness of God. This is the beautiful exchange. He took our filth and gave us His saving grace. And we receive that, and that changes us. His spirit within us changes us, His word changes us, His community of people around us sharpen us and change us. But it is a surrender. It is us bowing our hearts and our lives to Him and receiving Him as Savior, but also honoring Him as King, that we would listen and obey, that we would trust and obey. And in this growing journey, He will make us more like Himself along that way. We looked at judges and witnessed the horrific acts of sin and lostness of God's people, and today we are still a lost people in need of a King. Thankfully, we have one, and his name is Jesus. Jesus saves us and cleanses us. Yes, he saves us, and the cleansing part is a process, and this is called sanctification. Jen Wilkin reflects on sanctification like this. She says, Sanctification rarely looks like an immediate ceasing of a particular sin. It more often looks like an increase in the distance between repeated sins and a decrease in the distance between committing them and confessing them. God is so patient with his children. This is the posture of our king, guys. He is so patient. Psalm 103.8 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Micah 7.18 says, Who is a God like you who pardons sins and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, forever, but delight to show mercy. A.B. Simpson, the founder of this movement, the Christian Missionary Alliance, he says, This is the great business of all true Christians today, to make Christ king. Three things he says, Each of us can give give Christ the kingdom of our own heart, Number two, each of us can take Christ as king of your life by giving him your difficulties and your adversaries to overcome and permitting him to subdue all his enemies and yours and reign as Lord of all. Number three, he says, we can make Christ king by laboring for the evangelization of the world and the spread of his glorious truth and work. So I want to conclude now, and I want to invite the worship team to come up here as we we wrap up the morning. For the unbeliever sitting in this room today, for the one who has maybe not bowed the heart and the knee to Jesus as King and Savior, I just, I want to encourage you. You saw sin in this story today. And perhaps it has worked at a mirror that you see and recognize the sin in your own life and see that there is a Savior who has dealt with your sin. He finished it on the cross. Acts 2.38 says, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the believer in the room today, you come again to the table of the Lord's forgiveness. Do not let shame and fear entangle your hearts and cloud your mind. First John 1.9 promises us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This morning, maybe you, you feel the stirring of the Holy Spirit in your gut, in your heart, revealing to you the, the things of your mind, the things of your life that are sinful, the thoughts and the behaviors, the patterns, the things that you say, I, I need to lay this down. Maybe it's time for you to surrender these things to Jesus this morning. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, Maybe you're ready to commit your life to him today and ask him for that mercy and grace that is so vast and incredibly powerful. If you're sensing a need to confess and repent, to lay down your burden of sin and shame, whether you're a believer or you're not and you just want to come and lay it down this morning, I want to invite you as the the worship team is going to close us with a song. Come to the altar. Come forward. Come come get on your knees and lay it down before the Lord and say, "I've got dirt in my life." I am realizing this morning again, I have shame that I need to deal with. I've got darkness that I need his light to come into. Listen to what Isaiah 42:16 says. I will lead the blind in a path they do not know, in paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. That is a good and gracious king, amen. Here's where we started. Ephesians 2, I read to you, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. You remember when I read that at the beginning? Listen to this hook here. This is the hope that we cling to. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ I'm going to pray now. If you would bow your head and pray with me, you can. If you want to come forward and lay down your sins at the altar, your burdens and your shame at the altar, give them to Jesus. You can come and kneel, come and stand. Let's pray. Jesus, your grace is so wonderful. Your mercy is so deep. Your mercy is more than all of our sins. You take us wretched sinners and you wash us clean by the blood of the Lamb. And then you unleash us with with joy and the gift of the Holy Spirit to spread this hope, to spread this joy, to spread the good news. Jesus, if your grace can reach me, if your grace can reach a sinner like the Apostle Paul who was ravaging the church, let that be an encouragement for anybody here today who just thinks, ah, grace can't possibly reach me it can his grace is wonderful it is matchless it's deeper than the mighty rolling sea so we praise your name Jesus and we thank you for your finished work on the cross thank you for rising from the grave on the third day and giving us hope and life the power of your spirit the truth of your word strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow